0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nation, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present, of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. I
2: radio, radio show.
3: This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh,
2: yeah.
3: Alternative news, analysis Clap and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8:30am. Early
4: double.
5: Grab your, your
4: hats. <laughs>
2: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Three CR Tuesday Breakfast. It's seven a.m. and today is Tuesday, the sixteenth of January, twenty twenty-four. Uh, welcome back to our first live show of the year. My name is Fung, and in the studio today we've got Ivka and Francis. Good morning. Good morning. Morning. Welcome back to radio. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> how how are we feeling this morning?
0: We were just saying we are a bit slow this morning getting back to the um, early start, um, but excited to be in the studio again.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I totally agree. Remembering how long I'm a bit slower in the mornings when it's this
2: early, so I need to, I think, get up a little earlier until I get used to the routine again. Yeah, for sure. Um, I was the same and I was very ambitious this morning and I was like, oh, I'm going to ride in, but it meant you know, having to, there were other steps involved. And so mm-hmm. the usual amount of time that I would dedicate to preparing, you know, I probably needed a bit more, but that's <laughs> all right. We're all here, which is great. Um, we've got a big show coming up. So to start us off, we're replaying an excerpt from Women on the Line, which uh, took place earlier this week. Um, In that episode, oh, sorry, last week, in that episode, Emma spoke with uh, Samala Lee Cronin in Cairns, uh, who is a butchella and Wapapara woman, speaking about the work that they've been doing uh, with community um, in the aftermath of ex-tropical cyclone Jasper. So that's uh, coming up first. Then at seven thirty we'll be speaking again with Kit McMahon, who is the CEO of Women's Health in the South East. She'll be joining us to speak about a new programme that is set to address and prevent workplace gendered violence in the education and training sector. And at
1: 7.45 we'll be joined by VACO CEO Jill Gallagher. So that's the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation and they have recently launched their 2024 to 2025 budget submission to the Victorian Government uh, which focuses on removing systemic barriers for Aboriginal health and wellbeing. So Jill will be joining us to talk about uh, a few certain things that they're
2: requesting. And finally at 8 o'clock we'll be running sort of a roundtable discussion with three educators who are all fighting for a free Palestine. So that's Natalie, Dana and Claire. Um, Dana and Claire are both secondary school teachers and Natalie is one of the organizing members of teachers and school staff for Palestine. So that's coming up at eight o'clock. We will be back with the news headlines right after
6: this. 3TR Community Radio, 8.55am.
0: These are the news headlines for Tuesday 16th of January. So on Thursday last week, uh, January 11, Human Rights Watch released its 2024 World Report uh, and the latest uh, report on Australia notes the Australian government's um, progress on human rights over the past year and the way it was undermined by continued abuses against refugees and asylum seekers. It also notes the long-standing problems uh, of the over-representation of First Nations people in Australia's prisons and the mistreatment of children in juvenile detention. Annabelle Hennessy, Australia researcher at Human Rights Watch, writes, "Uh, "'The Australian government had an opportunity in 2023 "'to end its more-than-decade-long offshore detention regime "'when the last refugee was evacuated from Nauru Island in June. "'But yet just months later, in September, "'the Australian authorities sent a group of 11 asylum seekers "'for detention on Nauru and another 12 uh, in November.'" On First Nations rights, the report notes the unsuccessful October referendum to enshrine a First Nations voice in the country's constitution and laments how Indigenous people are significantly overrepresented in the criminal justice system with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, nearly one third of Australia's adult prison population, but just 3% of the Australian uh, national population. Uh, It also notes uh, the horrendous problem of deaths in custody. Another point in the uh, Human Rights Watch report uh, was that in September, Queensland suspended its Regional Human Rights Act for the second time to allow police to detain growing numbers of children indefinitely in police watch houses, which are concrete cells typically used to detain adults for short periods. And finally, the report notes that Australia remains the only Western country without a National Human Rights Act or constitutional charter. And as a follow-up to the above note on children and incarceration, in the news uh, yesterday, Monday, January 15, um, Ben Smee and The Guardian reports overcrowding in Queensland's Cairns Watch House, where as of last week, 14 children were being held in police custody. Um, A representative from the Queensland Police has said they were unable to meet the basic needs of children in custody, including providing adequate food, toilet paper, and there have also been problems with privacy. Uh, This overcrowding comes on the back of the Queensland government's move last year to suspend the state's Human Rights Act to allow children to be indefinitely detained in adult police holding cells. The state government has reported that um, its, quote, tough suite of youth justice laws have meant there are more children spending longer periods in custody. Uh, Today in The Guardian, it's reported that a senior psychologist treating children in the Cairns Police Watch House sent a cry for help letter detailing horrendous conditions and human rights abuses in the lockup, including claims that young people are not being provided adequate food, medical attention or legal support. Uh, Moving to Palestine, as the Gaza genocide reached its 100th day yesterday, a couple of updates are on South Africa's case to the International Court of Justice that Israel is committing genocide against the Palestinians. So last Thursday, South Africa accused Israel of being in violation of the 1948 Genocide Convention, which both countries are party to. This included the killing of Palestinians in Gaza in large numbers, especially children, destruction of homes, exclusion and displacement, blockade on food, water and medical assistance, the imposition of measures preventing Palestinian births by destroying essential health services crucial for the survival of pregnant women and babies. And all of these were listed as genocidal actions in the suit. Uh, Evidence submitted by South Africa claims acts and omissions by Israel are genocidal in character, uh, and this refers both to what Israel is actively doing and what it is failing to do in terms of preventing harm to civilians. The case also highlights Israeli public rhetoric as evidence of, quote, a genocidal intent. While South Africa's actions have had a huge support globally, uh, Australia has not stated a position on... Last week, Australia did not state a position on the accusations of genocide. And yesterday, Monday 15th of January, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said of the International Court of Justice proceedings on ABC Radio, we obviously are not a participant in the process and don't intend to be a participant in the process. Albanese said the Australian government would instead focus on a political solution based on a pathway to security and peace and prosperity in the region and said that that was the main game, not any court case and not anything else. Uh, Daniel Hurst reporting in The Guardian notes how different this is from the Australian government approach to Russia and Ukraine and the International Court of Justice involvement there. Uh, a quote from the Australian government uh, submission to the ICG on Russia and Ukraine last year. Australia submits these written observations as part of its continued commitment to protecting and promoting the rules-based international order and the peaceful settlement of disputes in which the court plays a vital role. Uh, Despite this, some amongst Labor want to see more action from Australia against Israel. Uh, On Monday, Labor MP Julian Hill called for the government to ban extremist Israeli settlers from visiting Australia and make it illegal for Australians to fund settlement activity in the West Bank. Uh, A quote from Hill, amid the horror occurring in Gaza, we must not lose focus on a sustainable resolution to this long-running conflict Uh, and he notes one of the major structural impediments to a two-state solution is the rapid expansion of illegal Israeli settlements in the West Bank. Uh, Equally, the Australian-Palestinian Palestine Advocacy Network on Monday called on the Australian government to pledge its support for South Africa's case uh, accusing Israel of genocide and commit to fulfilling its responsibilities under the Genocide Convention by using all tools at its disposal to prevent Israel's genocide of the Palestinian people. Uh, All of this comes as of um, when, as of yesterday, uh, Israel's attacks on the Gaza Strip had brought the death toll to more than 24,000 since October 7. At least 61,000 people are also injured in the enclave uh, and more than 8,000 people are still missing, uh, according to Gaza's Ministry of Health. Uh, Also, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees has said that Israel is obstructing the entry of humanitarian aid into the besieged Gaza Strip. According to uh, this UN agency, 85% of the population of Gaza is already internally displaced uh, amid acute shortages of food, clean water and medicine. Uh, And as people around the world were um, protesting this weekend for the Global Day of Action on Palestine, uh, so we'll have uh, some people speaking uh, on the program today, including educators fighting for a free Palestine later on the program. Uh, Finally, in the news uh, in Tasmania, there was uh, the replacement of the Aboriginal flag above the Tasmanian Parliament with the Danish flag, uh, which has sparked outrage amongst members of the local Aboriginal community and the Greens. Um, the Parliament flew the Danish uh, flag as a tribute to Danish Queen Mary and, uh, following her royal proclamation over the weekend. Uh, Indigenous campaigners have argued that the flag uh, represents the history and culture of Aboriginal people and should be flown consistently as a sign of respect. Uh, And Greens leader in Tasmania, Rosalie Woodruff, uh, wrote to Parliament's presiding officers uh, to protest the removal of the Aboriginal flag. Uh, A quote, like many others in the community, we were disturbed to see the Tasmanian Aboriginal flag removed from its rightful position. Whatever the view of the Danish flag flying over the Tasmanian Parliament, it is deeply disrespectful of the Tasmanian Aboriginal community, not to to mention a defiance of the will of the House who passed a motion to fly the Aboriginal flag. That's it for the news headlines.
7: We know you love listening to
6: 3CR but we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends.
7: So, show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever
1: you get your apps.
8: Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR.
2: Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. To start our show today, we're bringing you an excerpt of Women on the Line from Monday, 8th of January, 2024. In this episode of Women on the Line, the team heads to far north Queensland to hear about a grassroots First Nations response supporting remote communities impacted by ex-tropical cyclone Jasper. Emma speaks with Butchulla and Wapabara woman Samala Thakia Lee Cronin in Gamaloo Cairns about the work she and others undertook in collaboration with Mianjin Brisbane-based female-led black small business Dreamtime Aroa in the immediate aftermath of the cyclone. Please note that the following is an excerpt of a longer discussion. For more info, you can head to 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. Here's Emma.
9: On December 13th, Jasper made landfall as a Category 2 cyclone just north of Port Douglas and over the next five days caused extreme record-breaking rainfall as it very slowly moved inland towards the west. We speak with Samala Takiali Cronin in Cairns about the impacts of flooding on remote communities along the Cape and the work she and others undertook in collaboration with Mianjin Brisbane-based, female-led, black small business Dreamtime Aroa to provide support for people from remote communities impacted by the flooding, including those evacuated from Wujul Wujul, by flying much-needed supplies from Cairns north to Gangada Community Centre Aboriginal Corporation in Cooktown with the help of Daintree Air Services. Samala spoke with the program on the 28th of December. We'll mention how to get in touch with Dreamtime Aroa if you'd like to make further donations later in the show. But as the situation in Far North Queensland continues to unfold, the best thing to do is to check online to see where things are at.
8: This is Samala Now. My name is Samala Daki Ali Cronin and I am a bachelor and Wapabara woman uh, living in Gamora, Kansas
9: Thanks so much for making time to speak today. Um, so we're going to be talking about the work that you've been doing to support evacuees from Wujoo, Wujoo and also community impacted in surrounding areas like Hopevale and Bloomfield after Cyclone Jasper. So it's been in the news a bit, but for listeners who might not be aware, could you tell me about what the situation is like in in some of those communities after Cyclone Jasper?
8: Well, I think for listeners to understand what it's like after Cyclone Jasper, you have to understand what it's like living in remote community beforehand because when we're hit with natural disasters in really built-up areas where there's infrastructure, where there's hospitals, where there's support services, SES, all of these things, the response and the aftermath looks quite different. Um, So in these communities, you don't have those infrastructures. You don't have access to um, the same health and hospital systems as you do when you're living in a built-up area. So it's it's quite heavy on the ground. At the moment there's 123 people who are completely displaced and dispossessed and have nothing. Um, so infection, sepsis, things like this are starting to set in. I was talking to somebody on the ground today and. Um, Because of the sewage that got into the waters, you know, people had exposure to that. And there was also the threat of, you know, um, crocodile holes in the water and there were people on the roof of their houses for a number of days. So the aftermath of this on an emotional, physical um, and, you know, psychological level, I think, is is quite heavy.
9: Mm, A really serious situation with lots of people needing support. And, I mean, for example, there has been some coverage in the wider media about how um, the community of Wujoo, Wujoo has had to be completely evacuated. I mean, where have the people who've had to be evacuated
8: gone? Where is everyone now? Well, like I said, there's 123 people who have been totally displaced, dispossessed. They have no home to go to. Um, the PCYC in Cooktown, uh, some people have been evacuated there, but there's also been people that have been in need of medical assistance and without the infrastructure up in the Cape to uh, cater to their medical needs, some people have been flown down here to Cairns, which is at capacity. So from Cairns, people have been taken to Townsville, which has then also reached capacity. And so some people have actually had to go down to Brisbane um, and be facilitated in the hospitals down there and spent Christmas down there as well.
9: That sounds like a long way to be from family and um,
8: country and
9: community at that time.
8: Especially when you come from community, you know. um, It's, yeah, it's a very stimulating and overwhelming environment. I
9: I mean, in terms of uh, infrastructure and the need for supplies, um, I was... Wondering if you could speak with us about some of the work that you have been doing as part of the um, Dreamtime Aroa team um, yeah. to get supplies for people who've had to leave Wudja um and also people in other areas. I understand that, um, that uh, there have been special flights um, from Cairns to Cooktown um, and that's involved a number of different people and a lot of organisation. Um, could you tell us a bit more about some of that work?
8: I certainly can. Um, so we moved very quickly in the beginning after the cyclone um, because Woodja Wujoo and Yarraba were really affected by the cyclone before the floodwaters rose. And so the situation on the ground here, I know people get it through ma- mainstream media, but it's quite um, remote, um, the, the, th- the threats that you face from having floodwaters rising, it's crocodile-infested waters. So um, saving people, getting out, moving, it just the threat is just raised. Um, but you don't even actually have to think about when you have these flood events down south. Like, you've already got all of the debris and everything else, but these communities first had the cyclone, then they've had the floodwaters, and they were left there. And we have people, with First Nations people, we've got one degree of separation. So... There's connections within different people up in the Gulf and up in the Cape and um, Dreamtime Aroa had people reach out to them and I had had people reach out to me as well and we realised that the situation on the ground was actually quite dire and there was nothing moving and we also understand as mob ourselves that when these kind of things happen we hit first and we hit the hardest because we we all live on the bottom of that socioeconomic scale, and our communities suffer. They're marginalised. They suffer from um, lack of access to so many different services that you just don't experience when you're living in an urban or regional environment like you do when you're remote. And so we started to organise a fundraiser, and the funds started coming in and We were in contact with Greg and Judy from Daintree Air Services who were just absolutely amazing and provided the planes. So their planes, they moved them out because the airport here in Cairns flooded. And um, they got their pilots and put them on one plane and sent them up to get the rest of the planes and brought them back down. And, And we had people just, it was kind of like a contagion, a mass contagion. Uh, people came to help. Um, people brought donations, uh, non-perishable items, nappies, formula, um, cots, sleeping bags, towels, toiletries, everything you could think of. And we just kind of all pulled in. And the funds that we raised we used to purchase gift cards to give to people so that when they arrived when, after being evacuated, that they would have gift cards on them as well so that if there was anything missing in the supplies donated and they could go and purchase those as well Just basically tried to do what we could to try and ease the the divide because there was a huge gap um we did receive um three containers from the government that had um i think it was 12 hands in it so that was also good as well but i think in the grand scheme of things it's disappointing that they only sent that um because this was all a community effort, this was all a grassroots effort. This all came from strong Black Indigenous women that saw a need and put in the work, rolled up our sleeves, and got it done.
9: It sounds really amazing the work that has taken place, and yeah, I understand that at this stage that you've managed to. Um, I think uh, I saw on the Dreamtime a Facebook page that managed to deliver more than fifteen thousand dollars worth of aid, which is just um, yeah, I'm sure so needed.
8: And Um, that's what we've had come through our finances and everything. Like, I I feel with the community effort and the amount of manpower and hours, that's got to be up there in the hundreds of thousands because the the people that came and dropped it off, the people that were packing and making sure everything made it, you know, they volunteered their time. Like, the the time and effort as well as the financial aid that we've been able to supply has just been exponential.
9: on community radio around so-called Australia. You're listening to Women on the Line. This week, we're speaking with Samala Takayali Cronin in Cairns about work to support remote Aboriginal communities dealing with the ongoing impacts of flooding from ex-tropical cyclone Jasper in far north Queensland. And you mentioned you're um, part of the Dreamtime Aroa team, and you're also um, you mentioned a fashion designer yourself and the owner of Mumred the label. So yeah, you're. Um, I guess you're like small businesses. So why is it important to you and other community members to be doing
8: this work? Like, um, for Dreamtime Aroa, I I support them in everything that they stand for and everything that they do because they're a they're a grassroots black business that actually makes a difference to our communities on the ground, you know. And um, I'm not Dream Timer, I run Mum Red um, just to...
9: Oh, thank uh, you. Sorry. You're right.
8: That's okay. Um, I, I work with her. She's They're my sister girls. So that's, I guess, what is makes this so special and so powerful is it's sister girls who... We all run our own businesses. We all have our own families. We all have our own obligations and commitments. But we also understand that if we don't look after each other, we don't survive. And that's why we did this.
9: For sure. And you mentioned the government response of um, the delivery of the the 12 12 hams. Um, I mean, I understand that Army has also been around as well
3: Yes,
8: after the initial um, couple of days when we just started moving, that's when everybody started to come and because and it, it got bigger. It got bigger and bigger. And then we had a few newspaper articles and um, we did have the army come and they took choppers of donations and supplies up to Gangadi as well. And, yeah, so we, we, it ended up coming. But the thing is what's so important with these responses is the immediate response. The initial response when people are in, in need is everything.
9: Absolutely. And it sounds like community, looking after community, is really where it has been at in um, the immediate aftermath of the cyclone. Are you able to talk about what the situation for people um, who've been evacuated to places like the PCYC in Cooktown, what does the future look like for people who don't have um, a home to go back to, for example?
8: Well, I think that's a question to put to government, really. I'm not in a position to answer what it looks like in the future with what help is coming for them, um, because, yeah, they're going to need infrastructure, they're going to need houses, they're going to need um, uh, a disaster management plan that is going to prevent something like this happening again so that they're safe. A lot of the communities that we live on in, like when you think about the Cape and and um, the Gulf, um, you know, like we, they were set up as missions in those communities, like they were, they're, they're built by design, so they need to take into account now um, that we're living under threat from climate change um, with the placement of where we are now and what needs to be put in place to make sure that these things don't happen again and we're protected from them.
9: Absolutely. I did want to ask, I mean, what is the feeling about the astounding amount of rain that came along as part of Cyclone Jasper? I mean, while it may not be unprecedented, it seems very unusual.
8: Well, I think you've kind of, like, watching 1.6 metres of water come down in a day, like, in the rain, the rain was just, it was like something out of Noah's Ark. Like, it, it was biblical. It, it's really hard to explain it. But it was biblical. I, I was in the floods in Ipswich in 2011, and I've been through a lot of cyclones before as well. I've grown up in North Queensland, and the cyclone wasn't really what they built it up to be, but the water that came from it, I've never seen anything like
9: it. It sounds as though it's even with so much um, local knowledge and experience of country, it's really hard to predict what's going to happen um, in those kinds of situations as well. well
8: I think that's why we move so quickly, actually, to be honest with you, Emma, Um, is the amount of water that came. We understand that the lay of country and Cairns, where Cairns is situated, it's like a bowl. And that's where I was with the response. And I knew it was going to flood because all of that water also hits the tablelands and the range, which surrounds the town. And it has to come down the hill as well. So we're getting 1.6 metres of rain, but that's not all all in one place. That was spread over the entire area, and that all had to go somewhere. And the Cape is called the Cape for a reason. It's a Cape, and there's a mountain range that runs all the way up along it. It's part of the Great Dividing Range. It goes all the way along the east coast of Australia. And so when the water hits it, it has to come down. And we're very well aware of that, and so that's why we started moving so quickly. For
9: sure. I mean, with that kind of geography, that, yeah, that does sound, yeah, like the situation just uh, would have intensified so fast. Definitely. Yeah. And in terms, so I suppose this conversation more broadly, like raises um, two questions for the government about responses. So, I mean, firstly, there's um, what what would you say people need in the immediate aftermath um, of this cyclone? And, I mean, if listeners also want to support um, people who've been evacuated from Woodrow Woodrow and also people who've been um, impacted in surrounding areas, you mentioned Hopevale and Bloomfield as well. Um, Like, what what can
8: people do to support? Um, Support our voices and get our voices out and heard um, because we are on the ground, you know. Like, a lot of the coverage that I've seen has been about, you know, this being used as a political... Football. Uh, there's a lot of lobbying around it. There's a lot of, you know, fanfare with Stephen Miles coming in as a new premier. Um, what awareness needs to be raised about this, and the solutions for these communities actually lie within the communities. Um, government don't have the solutions for what is there, but they do have the funds and the resources, and the the power to be able to make sure that this doesn't happen again if they listen to the community. So that needs to happen and it would be really great if listeners out there could really help um, these communities and their stories and everything that has taken place get out there and be heard.
0: That was Samala thakili Cronin, Buchala and Wuppabora woman from gummi speaking about extropical tropical Cyclone Jasper and what listeners can do to support communities that have been impacted. Thank you to Emma and Women on the Line for this report. To listen to the full conversation, head to 3cr.org.au forward slash Women on the Line. You can listen to Women on the Line on 3CR every Monday from 8.30 to 9 a.m.
2: In 2022, the Fifth National Survey on Sexual Harassment found that almost half of incidents of sexual harassment in the workplace in the last five years were from four industry groups, retail trade, healthcare and social assistance, accommodation and food services and education and training. Joining us this morning to talk about the new project that is set to address and prevent workplace gendered violence in the education and training sector is Kit McMahon, CEO of Women's Health in the South East. Welcome back to 3CR Breakfast, Kit.
4: Oh, good morning. How are you?
2: Well, thank you. Uh, I mentioned just now that according to the um, Fifth National Survey on Sexual Harassment, the education and training sector was one of four industries where the proportion of incidents of sexual harassment was overrepresented. Can you please tell us more about these findings and what women and men are experiencing in these work environments?
4: Yeah, yeah. So that's a really important piece of research. And that's the education and training sector broadly, higher ed in all forms. The, the truth is we don't know much more specifically than that. There are, however, some pretty powerful indications that that there's prevalence of this issue. Um, in Victoria, the Workplace uh, uh, Gender Equality Act, um, the auditing, the public reporting that's done tells us that there's about 3 to 4% reports of sexual harassment in the public provider in TAFE. And we also know um, from reports done like, from RMIT, etc., University of Melbourne, University of Sydney, that there is prevalence of sexual harassment in um, their vocational education learning environments too. So the, one of the great opportunities of this project is that we're going to do a prevalence study to try to actually get a deeper understanding of, of where this is occurring and why.
2: Yeah, great, and and it will be um, yeah really good to find out more details about this um, as it comes to light. So the program or the project is called Training for Respect, which is a collaborative effort between multiple groups, including including Wise um, Women's Health, Goulburn North East Women's Health East, so, uh, Women's Health East, the Men's Project, the Victorian TAFE Association, and the Independent Tertiary Education Council Australia. Uh, Kit, I was wondering if you could describe what the Training for Respect program Program will entail. Yeah,
4: absolutely. So, this is, this is about actually over 18 months establishing what we call in primary prevention the, the infrastructure, the basic infrastructure to make a sustainable um, bedrock. For ongoing work to address these, because of course, addressing workplace gendered violence and sexual harassment doesn't sort of happen quickly. It takes this work takes time because we're addressing uh, the drivers, aren't we? So there's going to be a few things that we we set up. The prevalence study that I that I talked about, uh, we'll set up things like the um, governance and the steering committees, lived experience committees as well. And then we're going to set up a series of capability programs. There'll be an online set of modules, but then there'll be a face-to-face set of workshops across Victoria, because it's a Victoria-wide program, that'll target things like supporting managers and leaders about their role, as well as building the ability of the sector to have conversations about stopping workplace gendered violence. There's also going to be a campaign. And when I mean a campaign, I mean a primary prevention campaign, not something that sort of hits the media, as it were, but just sending messages through um, the industry and supporting positive messaging through the industry about how we address workplace gendered violence. Um, We're going to set up an online resources uh, hub for the sector. Um, The other thing we're going to do is going to map out, describe and publish what we call a referral pathway. So if something is disclosed, whether it's peer-to-peer, student-to-teacher, teacher-to-student, whatever that is, where do people go to disclose that? It's a very complex sector. And what's what's an agreed and, and best practice approach that people can find that about that more, whether it's going within your provider or is there any other referral pathways? And then, of course, the... Um, all-important part of this will be establishing a long-term, what we call theory of change. We're going to be out of there in June 25. but So what's going to be the vision and the organising framework to keep the sector moving to address this over the longer term?
2: Yeah, I think that's so important. Um, mm-hmm. That idea of being able to affect long-term change, make it a sustainable program um and as well um i think uh, the part where you were talking about referral pathways is really really important because um it we know from from listening to to victim survivors that it can be a very difficult painful process to disclose and for people with um you know who perhaps have uh who are queer or from um migrant refugee backgrounds like it can make it even more difficult Um, Mm. and so with that I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about taking an intersectional approach to this work Mm. which is super important and and the importance as well of centering people's lived experiences Mm. when engaging in this work.
4: Yeah. I think this is a real opportunity for this project is modelling how you do this. So for people that work in health promotion, primary prevention, gender, intersectional, this is kind of how you breathe, right? But I often forget that this practice is not normal or usual in other sectors. So we'll be bringing to this sector how you do that, how you speak to and engage with intersectional experience. setting up a lived experience oversight committee using human-centred design. So what that means is, uh, you know, when we develop the online modules, we're making sure that we're engaging people and remunerating people with the lived experience of being victim-survivor. Even, can I say, people who have, you know, admitted or gone through the process of understanding that they've perpetrated um, workplace gender violence, what would have stopped that occurring? and working with them and the educators and the teachers to make sure that there's something that's actually going to be work used, relevant and sustainable. The um, kind other of thing too is is the ongoing evaluation of the project is about getting the feedback and trying to seek to improve it uh, as well. Um, and then when you're actually delivering it, you're listening to the lived experience of those that are in the room. It's also understanding that people are not just a woman or not just a teacher or a mother, that there is people are many things that come together, um, that society creates barriers for that person to be themselves, to to reach their potential, to have a good life as well. So those that's how we're going to bring that into the project. On.
2: Yeah, um, that's that's great to hear because um, yeah, often that's missing is is acknowledging um, the systemic barriers, like you said, oh, that oh, make yeah. it so difficult for for people yeah. to um, to navigate. Um, yep. navigate institutions and, and things yep. like that. Um, my yep. final question for you this morning, Kit, you, you sort of touched on this just now, but um, what sort of mechanisms will be put in place in order to evaluate the effectiveness of the project and to collect feedback from um, from anyone who, who, who sets to participate yeah, in this program? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: So there'll be a, a program of lo- logic, absolutely. It'll be taking feedback from the partners There'll be the interactions that we have with people who go through those capability um, program capability programs, the responses that we get through the the campaign. Basically, each moment of interaction will be an opportunity to collect feedback on its take up, usability, and relevance. I think the other thing too is we'll be taking. Um, Uh, evaluation on on its impact across the broader vet system, because as you said, it's got to be systemic. But if anyone wants to contact us, the the website, which I think you're going to share with folks, has got contactability for people to contact us um, about any queries that they might have.
2: Great. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for joining us again on 3CR Breakfast Kit. Uh, We look forward to speaking to you again um, to follow up about this project.
4: Thanks so much. You take care.
2: Thank you, you too. So that was Kit McMahon, CEO of WISE, about the new project Training for Respect, which aims to address and prevent workplace gendered violence in Victoria's education and training sector. So to find out more about this program, you can go to uh, WISE, which is W-H-I-S-E dot org au forward slash training dash for respect and we'll make sure to uh, pop that link in our show notes later today we are going to uh, play for you a song now um, the first song for 2024 on tuesday breakfast this is by jen clower and it's called strong woman
3: How is it now, now that I'm screaming?
10: We need to end to the war in this country and the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory because they talk treaty and still lock our people up, they still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you.
6: You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR. 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au.
1: The Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, or VACO, has launched its 2024-2025 budget submission to the Victorian Government, which focuses on removing systemic barriers for Aboriginal health and wellbeing. The CEO of VACO, Jill Gallagher, joins us to discuss what this budget is requesting. Jill is a proud Goochimara woman from Western Victoria and is an accomplished and experienced strategic leader, Championing the needs of the First Nations community. Jill has spent more than 20 years advancing Aboriginal health and wellbeing through her work with VACO and has over 30 years of experience in leadership roles. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Jill.
11: Uh, Thank you for having me.
1: So the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, or for the rest of the interview I will be calling it VACO, is the peak representative for the health and wellbeing of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here in Victoria. Can you tell the listeners why having community-controlled health organisations is so important?
11: Yeah, no, all good. Look, first I think I need to say... Uh, why it was important to have Aboriginal community... ..why we were established in the first place. Mm, Please. Um, um, Here in Victoria, the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service is the first health service to be established um, um, from amazing Aboriginal leaders. And that was due to the need, because our people weren't accessing mainstream services for, as we all know, for a whole range of reasons. Such as fear, racism, um, not being treated appropriately, uh, and the list goes on. So that's the reason why our organisations were established. Um, now, why they should still be established and exist and grow is because uh, Aboriginal Health in Aboriginal hands does amazing work, um, because we know our communities. Mm. And we know what the solutions are, so that's 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 why um, um, we need the importance of our organisation. And there's many examples of what that looks like.
1: Do you have a couple of examples that you could share with the listeners for us this morning?
11: Yeah. Well, there's one example is the um, uh, the program uh, around. know, since colonisation, cultural inappropriate and unsafe health medical researches and uh, services that I mentioned earlier, Mm. um, the Aboriginal, um, you know, developing health programs and especially preventative programs, culture becomes a very important factor Um, and it's really important to... There was one... Uh, program and I'll point out one of our organisations and it's up in Horsham, it's called Gulum Gulum, and what they did, they used culture to also overlay uh, the work that they were trying to do uh, and that is they used the making of a possum skin cloak uh, workshop to bring a lot of young people in and connect with elders Mm. Um, and whilst they're making that possum skin cloak, they're also yarning about um, health programs and prevention and what, you know, what's an, uh, just an amazing program. Another one is the Beautiful Shore Project. Uh, and the Beautiful Shore Project was developed by community for community. Uh, and we knew that our mob weren't accessing mainstream screening services for cancer because, you know, our mob, as, as the listeners would know, our mob uh, aren't any more prone to get cancer uh, than non-Aboriginal people. But what's happening in our communities is that we're not being screened earlier enough uh, or at all. So when we do get cancer, it's at the very advanced stages but non-Aboriginal people are living longer with cancer. So the Beautiful Shore Project was developed by many Aboriginal communities in Victoria to help women uh, to access screening at a very, you know, very early stages. Um, And the shore is like... So each community designed this shore and they had their own cultural branding and their stories on it and um um and so when women go to be breast screened, um, they could actually use the shawl, and it's the concept that you've been wrapped in culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, And plus, your titties aren't flopping
1: out everywhere. That's incredible, Jill. And I think you said a phrase earlier, buy community for community. And I think uh, everything that you're calling for in the budget, that is really at the forefront. And in a system that is, you know, built by people, not for certain communities, and it is a really hard thing to access. I think those two examples are incredible. Um, In this budget, it calls for the statewide rollout of the Culture and Kinship Program. And I had a look through the evaluation report of this program, and it states that even in the short term, change is achievable when programs and services that support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are genuinely First Nations led. I'd love you to tell the listeners, uh, like, a summary of this program and what results you saw from it.
11: Yeah. So, basically, this is what I touched on very early on. Mm. Um, and one of the programs, I'll point out, Gulum Gulum up in Horsham, where they brought young people in a workshop. And I'll sometimes, you know, in, in modern um, Aboriginal cultures, a lot, um, especially in Victoria, Uh, to stay connected to culture, because colonisation, it was so brutal here and it was so devastating and so quick, it destroyed a lot of our own Aboriginal ways of knowing, being and doing. So a lot of our young people, especially the ones who've been disconnected from their community and their families, um, being connected to culture is a protective factor. That's what a lot of people don't understand. I remember... A very amazing elder, her name is Arnie Melva Johnson. She said to me, I think it must be now, 25 years ago, she said to me, Jill, if we do not grow our Burai strong in culture, then they're going to struggle to deal with what life throws at them in a modern Australia. So culture is a protective factor, and that's what this culture and kinship is trying to achieve. And the Gulen Gulen example is a lot of those young people that attended that workshop have never been exposed to that. So it was just amazing to see the smiles. um, And for those people, I mean, you can read that report. It's an amazing report. So we're saying we need to roll this out. Mm. Um, Yeah, so, you know, I mean, I, I don't think there's, any Aboriginal person out there that would disagree with me, as in culture is a protective factor, being strong in your culture and your beliefs and um, connected to your mob and,
1: yeah. Mm. And that that report, the Culture and Kinship Report, is a really amazing read and we will link to it in the show notes for our podcast later. Amazing. Um, Jill, Aboriginal communities in Victoria as you know, have attempted to change the way health research is conducted to make it ethical and respect Aboriginal cultures and needs, which is something it has not done in the past. In 2018, the Victorian Government took the necessary step of committing to the development of a research accord and provided initial funding for VACO to lead. And this was undertaken under your leadership. And in this new budget submission, 2024 to 2025, there is additional funding requested to implement Maranaru Maraguri, the Victorian Aboriginal Health, Medical and Wellbeing Research Accord. Can you uh, explain a bit about the process of developing the Accord and what its implementation would look like?
11: Yeah. Um, Yes, so the Research Accord is, we all know that since 250 years, uh, Aboriginal people have been under the microscope. Um, You know, I mean, in the very early days of colonisation, there was some atrocious... um, Incidents of scientists, you know, breaking into morgues and uh, grave robbing just to get Aboriginal skeletons and and the list goes on. So research in our community for a long time has been uh, really a dirty word.
3: Mm.
11: Um, But we know the importance of research, but the importance of good research and how do we apply uh, what we've learnt out of that research... Into program delivery. Um, so Vacho for many years has been trying to what's the word um, infiltrate the academia world, even you know Vacho we're a pig body for Aboriginal health and well-being. We are not a research institute. so our influence in that space has been pretty poor. Mm. Um, but with the research accords, that will help not only Vacho, but local Aboriginal community-controlled organisations and communities to be able to influence that research agenda and make sure the research is good research, it's done ethically, uh, and who owns the data. Mm. It has to be us as Aboriginal people.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's going back to what uh, we've touched on many times through this conversation of even something like data in the right hands is culturally safe and can be, you know, beneficial moving forward. Um, otherwise, it can be taken advantage of.
11: Yes. And not only that, I mean, uh, it's really hard. I remember a long time ago, the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service, they set up a re, um, an ethics, an Aboriginal-specific ethics committee. And that was to try and help and, and, and add some Aboriginal expertise um, into the academia world of research and ethics. But it was it was too hard. I mean, it's a humongous big um, community in its own right, research and academia. Mm. Um, but the research accord has also looked at how can we do that? How can we influence all the ethics committees um, and, and also, the other, I think the other aspect is, um, there's, for many years, there's been a lot of, um, what do you call it, medical trials that, mm. that researchers, um, you know, new medicines, whether it's fighting cancer or, or, or a whole range of illnesses. Our people don't access those trials. And some of them are life-changing So we'd like to open up that door to give our people the option to decide whether they want to.
1: Mm, Totally. Uh, Yeah. Um, And lastly, this morning, uh, in the budget, it calls for support for the Dandenong and District Aborigines Cooperative to acquire land and fully develop plans for facilities that deliver holistic models of care and that replace rundown facilities. And so according to census data, the Dandenong and District Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population in 2021 was 13,000 roughly, and the census projections are stating that the population will grow to around 23,000 in 2036. So with this growth and current facilities restricting crucial services, what would funding uh, in this region uh, do to improve facilities? Wow. Uh,
11: look, Danny Nong, we've done a
1: whole that show with our members. We have 33
11: Aboriginal community-controlled organisations around the state of Victoria. Danny Nong, Dandenong Danny Nong is one of them. Danny Nong, um, and we've done a lot of work in trying to assess our infrastructure needs for our organi- our members. Um, and Danny Nong's come on top as a priority. And most of our members supported that because their infrastructure, where they deliver services. Their offices, their doctors' clinics, they're you know prehistoric basically. And some doc, some GPs have said, look, we shouldn't even be working in here. Wow. So, yeah, I know it's it's that bad. So we've called on the we've called on the government. We put up a whole proposal to to address all our organisations' infrastructure needs. No one funds Aboriginal organisations in Victoria for infrastructure. Mainstream community health. And hospitals get a lot of state government funding for that, um, but we don't, and we rely on Commonwealth funding. But they see Victoria as as not a priority, um, Commonwealth. So, um, and then it's competitive. So if you got uh, if you're a big organ- Aboriginal organisation, you've got um, what do you call them? submission riders and that, um, and in that competitive market, they will get it. But the littler ones that don't have those resources, they struggle to compete. So we've called on the Victoria... And we've shown them the way. We actually put up a whole program where it would cost the government very little. But anyways, but in the interim, we've put up a budget bid for on Infrastructure. And um, um, so we're hoping, out of all the budget bids, uh, that's going to be a priority for government.
1: Mm, for sure. You need... Uh you know, good facilities to be able to implement all the amazing work you've been talking about uh, in the rest of the interview. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for this morning, Jill, but thank you so much for joining us to talk about this budget submission.
11: No problem, and thank you for asking me.
1: That was Jill Gallagher, CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, which has launched its 2024 to 2025 budget submission to the Victorian government. We'll link to the full budget submission in the show notes where you can find out more information on the Culture and Kinship Program and Maranaru Maraguri, the Victorian Aboriginal Health, Medical and Wellbeing Research Accord.
2: In just a moment, we're going to be speaking to Claire, Dana and Nat about um, educators standing for a free Palestine. But first, we'll play you another song. This is by Emma Donovan, and it's called Black Nation.
7: This country's black future
2: was Emma Donovan with her song, Black Nation. For our last segment today, we're going to be speaking to three educators who are are all fighting for a free Palestine, Natalie, Dana and Claire. So in the studio with us now is Natalie, who is a doctoral candidate in education, a teacher and one of the organizing members of teachers and school staff for Palestine. Uh, Her research explores the politics of belonging in education and schooling. Also joining us on the phone is Dana and Claire. Dana is a secondary school maths teacher, having changed careers from being a financial analyst. Dana's passion is in maths and spreading awareness on the Palestinian occupation, being a Palestinian herself, who grew up regularly visiting family in the West Bank. Our third guest is Claire, who is a secondary school humanities teacher. Claire has spent the majority of her spe- seven years of teaching working in alternative settings and describes the young people she works with as her greatest teachers on the responsibility, importance and skills of being a good teacher. Thank you for joining us on 3 our Breakfast, everyone. Thanks, Fonga. Uh, Dana, I'll start with you. As I mentioned in the introduction, you are Palestinian and an educator. From your experience and perspective as a Palestinian educator, why is it so important to spread awareness about what is currently happening?
5: Unfortunately, um, the the free... So us Palestinians, we have a deep connection to our land, even though we grew up away from it. Every Palestinian inherently has this longing and affection to return to our land. Our story's been happening for 75 years. We've grown up hearing the details of it, being in a Palestinian family, um, first-handedly hearing about what the Palestinians go through over there. However, we realize the general public doesn't know anything about it. Even it it used to be um, the case when uh, people ask me where I'm from, and I'd say Palestine, they'd say Pakistan. I say no Palestine. They say what? Where's that? Whereas now, because of what's happening, everyone is very aware of what, where Palestine is and what is happening, the the occupation and the oppression. So it's very important to spread the message because oppression in 2020 in the in, in the 21st century should not be something that is acceptable. Justice is for everybody. We're all equally human. We all deserve equal rights and so. Yeah, it's important to know that you can't get away with occupation anymore.
2: Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Really well said, Donna. Thank you so much. Claire, I was wondering if you could speak to uh, what you regard as the responsibility of being an educator here in so-called Australia and how this relates to the struggle for a free Palestine. Sure.
10: Um you know, our role as teachers um, is to help facilitate young people to respect and honour themselves and each other in their um, identities and their histories and their sense of self and place in the world. And um, in that, we, we have to teach uh, all histories um, and all stories of students. And, you know, we know that when we um, we hear each other's stories, that's how we build an understanding and respect for one another in the classroom and in the greater community. And I think our responsibility as educators um, is, you know, that we we hear and affirm all stories of all students and all staff. And through that, that's how we teach building, um, you know, the... The love and respect for each other that is integral to a world that is um liberate you know um liberatory for all and that does not um oppress any other other people and i think as dana said you know so many people are not aware or have not been aware of palestine um, and its history and it's our responsibility to um to teach students about all histories but also to teach them to speak and learn um, and we do that through listening to each other and listening to each other's stories. And so if we if we are ever unable to speak of other people's stories, then how can we create students who are um, respectful and understanding of each other and create a world where oppression doesn't exist?
2: Yeah, definitely. I think um, what you said just now, Claire, about listening and storytelling, I think those are two um, really important things that I'm sure a lot of educators can can, uh, do really value um, in this space. Um, Dana, I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about the role that uh, educators play in bringing about radical change. You said earlier that you know, in this this day and age, for there still to be um, oppression and occupation is totally unacceptable. So, what role can teachers, educators, school staff play um, in bringing about more positive change in the society?
5: Yeah, so teachers, we we we're, we're we build the community, we um, we raise the, the community, we teach love, we teach peace for all we, but we also have to pass on knowledge to foster critical thinking um, and inspire students um, to to decide. As Claire said, um, you know, teach them the history, the, the the story as it is, of all the all the histories, all the countries, all everything that's been happening, and let the students have use their own critical minds to think about what conclusion they want to conclude for themselves, what they want to come up with, what they, what inspires them. Um, so as teachers, we ha- we're we promoters of peace. Um, we have to be inclusive in the cr- classroom. Um, the media and everything is heavily biased towards um, the Israeli side of the story. So inclusivity in the classroom, where we have them feel that, no, both sides are acknowledged here, um, not just one side, um, is, is very important because there is a lot of um, students that... Um, if my son was in high school and, and and he wasn't hearing anything from our side, anything uh, supporting the Palestinian side, I know for a fact that that would hurt him. That would hurt his feelings, knowing that okay, only one side is being acknowledged. So inclusivity is very important in classrooms. Um, we so we have to advocate for the side that the media, well, uh, most the majority of the media doesn't, um, as well as. Um, uh, yeah, promote love and peace for all, five, for, all for everybody.
2: Um, yeah, I think that's, yeah. Uh, that's really important. And what you said just now about teaching young people critical thinking skills is uh, really vital, especially in um, a time where they can access information from various sources um, so easily on their phone, um, through social media, different platforms um so it it is really important for them to be able to think critically about what they're what they're what kind of information they're absorbing um claire for listeners who don't work in education what are some challenges that teachers can face um in this sort of work
10: um i mean there's so many challenges that teachers face in their work um uh, and I think, you know, starting from um, the schools in general are often inequitable places um, across the state, you know, in, that, in terms of funding and, and access to resources and, and different things. And the students are really aware um, often of those inequities within their own school, within other schools, um, you know, because students have friends across, you know, multiple communities and multiple areas. And, you um, and uh, much like, um, just uh, touching on Dana's point of that, um, of a really important thing to teach students is to cr- is to think critically and, and, you know, and to understand where the information is coming from and, and um, where, you know, who's telling the story, where's the story coming from, or who's are are being heard. Um, and I think it's... Um, Particularly in, in light of the current um, conflict in Palestine and the, um, what's happening in education is one of the greatest challenges that we are seeing. That um, as educators, it's really hard to maintain teaching, um, uh, you know, a commitment to the social and emotional and cultural well-being of all members of our community when we are unable to teach. Certain histories and stories of students, of all staff, and I sort of go back to that teaching, that notion of storytelling, and being able to make sure that all voices are being heard. And only if all voices are being heard, can um, can kids, you know, be taught to think critically. Um, And it's, you know, we we really want to we need a commitment to supporting and nurturing and affirming all cultures. Um, so that all students have the opportunity to feel included and valued and supported in their identity and in their learning. Um, and you know, amongst some of the challenges in education is that we we have to be able to yeah teach all histories and hear all all young people's stories.
2: Yeah, for sure. And I, I really like what you said just now, Claire, about addressing uh, not just the, you know, the academic needs of the child, but also social, emotional, um, cultural as well, um, and take a more holistic approach to, to teaching and education. Um, Natalie, I'm now going to go to you. You are one of the organizing members of Teachers and School Staff for Palestine. Um, I guess touching on what, you know, um, Claire and Dana have already said about what, what it's like to be in this space at the moment as an educator, I was wondering if you could talk about um, how this group came about and and why it was important to to have this um, act of solidarity from educators.
6: Yeah, thank you for having us. Um, I think that at the beginning, the group kind of come together as part of their connections to the union um, and different union groups. And it was really at a time when Israel's intensification of violence against Palestinian people um, continued. And I say intensification, acknowledging the context that this is kind of existing within from, you know, 75 years ago. Um, And so um, people started to get together at rallies um, and form solidarity there. And in between those rallies, they were also meeting online and talking through WhatsApp groups, which now has more than 100 people that have joined that. Um, And really, it was about making sure that the group thought about how can we take this collective action and what can we do within school context to do that? Um, So it involved things like um, wearing signs of solidarity. So the kefir. Um, badges that had things like the Palestinian flag on it to really show those kind of visual forms of solidarity. Um, It was also hosting things like um, watermelon morning teas within school context so that people could open up a more kind of critical dialogue around what was happening and for that to be a safe space. Um, They also held the vigil for um, Palestinian children and educators and Palestinian people more broadly who had been killed at that time. Um, and really also indicating signs of solidarity with students who are also taking actions in terms of solidarity with Palestinian people.
2: Yeah, definitely. So it sounded like it was quite an organic um, beginning, I guess, for the group uh, being connected to other um other groups and collectives that were already um, popping up. And like you said, you know, um, people are seeing on their screens every day children, educators um, being killed, classrooms being destroyed and bombed. So, um, yeah, it, it seems like it would be quite of natural for, for teachers um, to to stand up and, and want to use their voice in that way. Um, is there anything that you would like to add to what Dana and Claire have already said um, when it comes to the challenges that educators face um, in speaking up about Palestine?
6: Yeah, I think that in terms of the government response as well as the mainstream media outlets, that's been a real challenge because what's been happening is teachers are being told to remain silent. Um, and when they do talk about this, they're framed as divisive, inflammatory, and I take direct quotes there from our Minister for Education. And we're told to remove signs of solidarity. We're told to stop talking about this. Um, and that really is politicising the issue from a government level. And it's also really dehumanising the experience of Palestinian people. Um, and so, you know, people are issued warnings for handing out flyers in schools. Someone was sent home for doing that, a teacher. Um, And, you know, obviously we respond immediately to that in any form of repression Um, and we make sure that we put in union motions to show that solidarity action is actually okay and we're allowed to do that. Um, But also the censorship is coming from the mainstream media outlets and that's a real shame because it negatively positions our solidarity and it uses language ironically that is divisive and inflammatory and that ends up creating divisions within our education community, and it creates the conditions for discrimination. Mm. Um, So I think that from a mainstream media outlet perspective, as well as the government, there's a real responsibility for them to be taking a stand here in terms of leadership, and to really make sure that they hold, you know, their responsibility and accountability for creating contexts that are safe for everyone. And we see that the work that we're doing within schools is like Claire said, prioritizing the social, emotional and cultural well-being of everybody Um, and we can't be selecting which people we do that for and which people we don't.
2: Yeah definitely that's such a good point. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, the current campaigns that um, teachers and school staff for Palestine are running. Uh, Can you tell our listeners about, um, about some of these?
6: yeah so we have um the open letter which some people have encountered um that's received more than a thousand signatories from education representatives in victoria and that's open to anyone whose work is connected to education so it's not just for teachers of course it's for teachers but it's for anyone whose work is connected so allied health professionals who work with children and young people particularly in schools social workers um, education support staff academics um, tutors um, so, we really encourage people to add their signature to that. Uh, we received more than a thousand signatures in less than a month, which I think is a real sign of solidarity amongst the community. Mm-hmm. We also have a call to action to all members of the Victorian community, not just educators. And that's, um, we're asking people to join our call to ask our Minister for Education and our Deputy Premier. um, And he's also the Minister for um, Medical Research. We're asking people to get in touch with him via email. We have an email template. And to really ask him to kind of respond to our calls for his action. Um, He's refused to meet with us despite the signatories that we have that are saying that we want action and then we want to speak with him. So we would really appreciate if the Victorian community could get behind us on that one. Um, And also to follow us on social media because we have plenty of future actions planned. Um, Join us at the rallies every Sunday and also share with your educator connections, even if you're not an educator yourself, because there are a lot of people that don't know about this. And when they do, I think they feel um, a, a real deep sense of safety, knowing that there's this whole community of solidarity behind them. Um, ready to take action.
2: For sure, definitely. Uh, Finally, Nat, I was wondering if you could talk about the upcoming forum. uh, That's for Teachers for Palestine coming up on Monday, the 22nd of January 2024. Who uh, will be some of the speakers and how can educators and listeners get involved?
6: Yeah, so we're really excited about this. It's on Monday, the 22nd of January at 1pm. It's called Why There's No Neutrality on Genocide. And um, we have speakers including um, Samar Sabawi, we have Tasnim Mahmoud Samag and a teacher panel. And the idea is that we really wanna be empowering educators in solidarity with Palestine. And we want them to have a safe space to be in dialogue with one another and to be able to share that space to think about how we can move into this new school year, um, showing signs of solidarity with Palestine and how we can bring that into our school context in our classrooms. Um, And we really want to make sure that it's a chance for people to, you know, have that particular focus on advocating for justice in a way that they can feel safe to do that work and feel as though that's something that they're supported to do as well.
2: Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for that, Natalie. Um, Claire, Dana, I might throw to you one more time. Is there anything else you wanted to say um, to add to what Natalie has already said? Um, uh, Dana, I'll go to you first.
5: No, I just wanted to thank, honestly, anybody that's showing solidarity towards the Palestinians and the cause, um, because it's only been the Palestinians showing solidarity, because it hasn't been a public thing ever, um, up until this war, this time. So I just want to honestly use this opportunity to thank anyone and everyone that is even showing the slightest bit of support and just know that the people of Palestine in the West Bank, they, well, I'm not, I don't know anyone in Gaza, but in the West Bank, they really appreciate knowing that there's so much support. They appreciate the protests. They appreciate the vigils. They appreciate everything, knowing that that's all we could do. So I just wanted to thank everybody for
10: for that.
2: Thank you for that, Dana. Yeah. Thank you. And Claire, anything else that you'd like to add?
10: Yeah. um, I just, I'd just like to add that, you know, our responsibility as teachers um, is to, you know, first and foremost, is to bring safety to all of our students. Um, and safety is about being able to promote human rights um, and to teach in a way that does not deny any child, you know, their identity and sense of self. So we need to be able to um, to hear all perspectives and therefore we need to be able to speak about the current genocide that's happening in um, Palestine Um, and, you know, the expectation that only some histories um, and world events are addressed by teachers in schools. Um, it's completely indefensible, um, you know, and, and like like the Australian judicial system, like only hearing one side of an argument will never um, amount to, you know, a fair and equitable um, and liberatory world. Um, and, yeah, so I would, you know, urge um, all educators to be able to speak to be able to um, create spaces where uh, all histories are being examined and and spoken about and looked at and all stories are being heard. And I think, you know, we need to be um, able to teach the context of of world histories through teaching all histories.
2: Mm. Yeah, that's such a great point to end on Claire so thank you so much for that Um, I really wanted to thank you all Natalie Dana and Claire for joining us on 3CR this morning I think you've opened up really interesting and really important dialogues um, about the responsibility and the power that educators have um, when when um, speaking up for a free Palestine so thank you all for joining us on 3CR this morning thank you for having us If you've just joined us, we've been speaking to three educators who are fighting for a free Palestine, Dana and Claire, who are both secondary school teachers, and Natalie, who is one of the organising members of Teachers and School Staff for Palestine. You can keep up to date with... um, the collective Teachers and School Staff for Palestine by visiting their link tree um, and we will include that in our show notes later today so you can join um, any of the actions and campaigns that they have and also follow them on social media. We will be back with a wrap-up of today's show after these messages.
4: What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them.
10: This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved.
9: Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in, and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance.
10: Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the
4: Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years, it has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active.
9: APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. Stand
11: in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday.
6: With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people.
11: Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack.
6: We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library this Sunday.
11: Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war
6: on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.
2: Welcome back to 3CR Breakfast. We're going to do a wrap-up of today's show. Uh, So I'll throw over
0: to Frances. First up, we heard from Samala Lee Cronin, Buchella and Wuppabura woman from Gumay speaking about ex-tropical cyclone Jasper and what listeners can do to support communities that have been impacted. Uh, We played that from uh, Women on the Line.
2: After that, we spoke with Kit McMahon from WISE, which is Women's Health in the Southeast, who spoke to us about uh, the upcoming project that's about to be released to address and prevent workplace gendered violence in uh, the education and training sector. We were then joined by
1: CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, Jill Gallagher. Jill joined us to discuss uh, VATRO's budget submission to the Victorian Government which focuses on removing systemic barriers for Aboriginal health and well-being. In the show notes we will link to that full budget submission so you can learn more about the Culture and Kinship Program and Maranaru Maraguri, the Victorian Aboriginal Health,
2: Medical and Wellbeing Research Accord and finally just now we were speaking to educators who were part of the struggle for a free palestine so we were joined by dana and claire who are both secondary school teachers as well as natalie who is one of the organizing members of teachers and school staff for a free palestine and they spoke to us about the importance of advocating for um for people in palestine and um, the power that educators have can who can, um, yeah, in bringing about um, positive change. So that's all that we have time for today. Make sure you tune in next for Accent of Women. 3CR Breakfast would like to
3: thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton.
1: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.